You're listening to a sermon from Mission City Fellowship of San Antonio, Texas. Mission City Fellowship exists to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ who live all of life for the glory of God and proclaim Christ for the joy of all people. Gospel of John. We are now entering into John 4. Many people in the passage that we're in today would consider this passage to be a very familiar passage. Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman at a water well. It's a big passage, about 40 verses. And so we debated, should we, should we do all 40? Um, but as we just dug in, or as I dug in, I just thought there's just too much good here for us to try to go through all 40. So, so we're going to do, do verses 1 through 18 today. That's what we're going to do. Um, so if you would pray with me. Lord, thank you for your goodness, Lord. Lord, thank you that... Lord, there, there, there are so many things that we try to build our faith upon, in a sense, or try to find su- su- sustainment or fulfillment or satisfaction in. But, but thank you that truly, as we're going to see today, you, you are the only true well of life that will never fail us. As our brother Rob reminded us earlier, Lord, everything else will fail us. Ultimately, relationships fail us. Sound systems fail us. Our own strength will fail us eventually. But Lord, we run to you and we look upon you, the never failing God of the universe, great and holy and mighty in power, strong and good and kind, faithful, never failing faithfulness. Oh, thank you, Lord. Lord, as we go to your word, as we, uh, as we turn our eyes to, to your scripture, Lord, and would you open our eyes to you? Oh, Lord, cause us to see you afresh. Let our hearts not be, Lord, we can be tempted to just respond as we look upon you as if that's just normal. Lord, no, no, let it not be. As we look upon you, would you just break the barriers of normalcy? Would we be amazed and shocked at you? And then glad. Oh, Lord, may that be so. Do your good work today in your word. In Jesus' name we pray and the church says, amen. Amen. A couple of months ago, I was able to join a small group of pastors. Uh, Many of you are familiar with Nepal. Um, I was able to join a small group of pastors as we went to Nepal and sought to encourage and care for and equip local pastors and their churches and While we were there, one of the pastors, Barnabas, who's kind of our main connection there, Barnabas um, took us throughout Kathmandu and other areas. But in Kathmandu, he he wanted to show us what life is like in Nepal. And in doing that, one of the places that he took us to was uh, the largest temple grounds in the world, Pashupati Temple, a Hindu temple. And you'll see a picture picture up on the screen there. It's a place filled with worship of idols, hundreds of idols, maybe probably more than that, but visibly there. I'll try to talk as loud as I can if it goes off here. In fact, as you walk into the grounds, people can buy their offerings. There's just a row of people buying their offerings, hustle and bustle, and then they go in, they take off their shoes because they think it would make the grounds filthy and dirty. But the reality is the ground is covered with cow poop 
It's filthy and dirty already, but they're walking now barefoot on this ground through this temple. And then you hear over the, this, these speakers just this low drone just saying, it's not in English, but come and worship. Come and bow down and worship to Sceva. And it's just repeated over and over and over, this drone. And it just feels as if everyone's just kind of walking and going. Hundreds, if not thousands of people coming to this place, this place of great idol worship daily, seeking to be made righteous, seeking ways to be cleansed of all of their wrongdoing. And as you just watch all of these people bringing offering after offering, and you see how burdened and weighed down they are, it's not a place of joy. It's not a joy-filled place. They're not going in with glad hearts. Say, let's go and worship. No, it's, it's heavy. It's dark. It's sad. It's dirty. There's a river that runs through the temple grounds, which is what you see here on the left. There's a river that runs through the temple grounds, and it's filthy. But they believe that this filthy water will wash them and spiritually cleanse, cleanse them. And so the, the people will bring their loved ones who have died to the edge of the river. In fact, they were doing it even as we were there. They're bringing these dead loved ones to the edge of the river so that the water could be put on their bodies and put on their feet in hopes that it just, it's going to wash them as they're in their final time here on earth, it's just washing them and cleansing them. And then they take their bodies, which you see here, and they burn those bodies next to the river. And so that's just ashes. The air is filled with this smoke. And then those ashes just fall into the river. Those who are alive will take this same filthy, dirty water and put it on their bodies. In fact, while we were there, we saw one man come and put it on his head, wipe it on his hands, his feet. They'll take this filthy water, put it on their bodies in hopes that it will bring them spiritual refreshment and cleansing. It's somewhat ironic because the same water that so many come to, believing it to cleanse them, we learn that the government has issued warnings to the people not to drink the water. In this pursuit of cleansing, they may think that, well, I'm just going to drink it. And they put out notifications, don't drink the water, it's filthy, it'll make you sick deathly sick. Don't drink it. And in fact, the government has, has built purification, like a purification plant above to try to purify this water that they believe can spiritually purify them. As we stood by the, the river and just watched, your heart just, just shattered as you saw person after person come to the temple grounds of idols and take of this filthy water, putting it on them, thinking it gives them life when really it just makes them sick and it's just dirty water. This is so symbolic of the spiritual condition of people. Coming to the land of idols with thirsty hearts, taking of the world's filthy river, thinking it can satisfy and give them life. But in the end, it just leaves them unsatisfied. It just leaves them hurt and broken and what we'll call today heart thirsty. 
In today's passage, we, we see Jesus encounter a woman at a well who has been spiritually drinking from the filthy streams of the world. And it has left her parched and dry, unsatisfied and without relief. And we're going to see that Jesus himself is the true well. He is the true well. He is the wellspring of life. And from him flows river of life. And in his kindness, he is inviting those who have been drinking of filthy streams of the world and have been have been unsatisfied and have these been left with thirsty hearts. He's inviting them to come and drink and find true refreshment, find true relief, true soul satisfaction for their thirsty hearts. That's the invitation for us today. Come and see the true well, the true water, true refreshing life is found. Jesus. So if you would look at your Bibles, John 4, verses 1 through 18, and follow along with me as I read God's word. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Joseph wearied, or Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, And who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink. You would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. And the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands 
And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The first thing we see in verses 1 through 9 is Jesus, the purposeful Savior, and the rejected people. Jesus, the purposeful Savior, and the rejected people. Last week, we heard at the end of chapter 3 that more and more people are beginning to hear about Jesus. In fact, John the Baptist was celebrating that this was happening. He, he, he existed so that the fame of Jesus would spread. But the problem is that we now, or we know by reading the Gospels, that, that as Jesus' fame is spreading, and more and more people are hearing of him and following him, and people are coming to be baptized out of repentance, which was shocking to the Jews in that case. But these religious leaders are hearing of him as well. So the fame is spreading, and you would say, well, shouldn't we celebrate that? We want Jesus' fame to spread. But the problem is, is, as we know, as we watch the Gospels and other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as we're, as we're reading through them, we see, okay, when Jesus' fame spreads and more people start to follow him, the equation is that the religious leaders of that time recognize this, and within them, is not the fame of Jesus in their hearts swelling up. Within them, more and more hate of Jesus begins to swell up. And so as the, the fame of Jesus spreads, this hate of Jesus grows, which ultimately leads him to the cross. So we're at this point, John's recognizing Jesus' fame is spreading, and the religious leaders are taking note and Jesus leaves. Jesus knows he has come to die. Jesus is not surprised when that moment happens. He knows the cross is ahead of him. He's not going to avoid that moment. But he is going to die whenever it's time for him to die. Not a moment too soon. Not a moment too late. He is going to, in a sense, we have echoes here in these passages that Jesus is going forth on his own terms. He's not ruled by man's emotions and feelings and hatred for him. He's not being swayed around and jerked around. And so when we see Jesus sort of flee, or what looks as if he flees, there are these echoes that are almost in the scripture. How is God sovereignly working here? What is God up to? as Jesus leaves one place for another place. Jesus chooses to leave Judea, the area in and around Jerusalem, and make his way to the far north region of Galilee. And in verse 4, we're told something very interesting. John says this, He had to pass through Samaria. Samaria was this land in between the far north region of Galilee, where Jesus wanted to go, and the southern region of Judea, where Jerusalem was, which is where Jesus was. And so as he leaves Jerusalem and is going to head to Galilee, there's this in-between place called Samaria. And at this point in history, here's what we know. Jews did everything they could to avoid the Samaritans, including 
if they had to travel from Judea to Galilee, they would choose to take the longer route and go around Samaria so that they could essentially avoid any contact with the Samaritan people. They despised the Samaritans. The Samaritans were rejected by them. They actually considered them an unclean people. So you wouldn't conduct business with the Samaritans. You wouldn't purpose. You would never have to go through Samaria. John Calvin, in his commentary, he actually says this, that it was as if, it truly was as if the Jewish people viewed the Samaritans as the scum of the earth. That was the hatred here. So what was, what was the reason for this hatred? So just a quick, quick history lesson here. The reason for, for this hatred. After King Solomon, the, the kingdom split up into a southern region and a northern region, into two kingdoms. And you had in this southern kingdom of Judah, and it was broken apart in the northern kingdom of Israel. And the nation's capital up to that point had been in Jerusalem. And so everything was happening in Jerusalem. You go to Jerusalem, you, you worship in Jerusalem. The temple is in Jerusalem. And when the kingdom broke apart, there's, two, there's now two, in a sense, kingdoms. And, and the northern kingdom began to establish their own capital. They began to think there was another temple that they should worship, that we can worship God in this temple instead of that temple. We're going to do our, sort of our, our own thing in this northern region. And then what happened in, in 722 B.C. is that the Assyrians came in and conquered the northern region. And the Israelites who were left there, you have the Assyrians move in, these pagan people. They move in and now they intermarry with those who are left. And they bring with them their beliefs, these pagan beliefs. And so now you have a new people, in a sense, birthed. To the Jews, they, would, they viewed them, they viewed the Samaritans as sort of this half-breed, cultic-like people. Because even as those false beliefs began to be blended, even ethnically blended, and then these, these beliefs blended, they accepted the first five books of the Old Testament but rejected everything else. And then even in those five books of the Old Testament, those first five, there were, there were changes. There were these, these, these changes that had been made essentially. And so they had their own kind of custom view of the first five books. And so the Jews really did view them as these are, these are cult-like, half-breed, wicked, pagan people. And so you avoid them at all costs. They are unclean. In fact, there, there is a rabbinic law that was added that if for a, a Samaritan woman, from the moment she's born to the moment she dies, she's, she's viewed as unclean. So should you touch her? Should you come near her? Essentially, in Nepal, they would call people like this untouchables. You don't partake of them or you yourself are unclean. That is how the Samaritans were viewed. And so they were unclean. They're rejected people. They're despised and hated people. And so you avoided these people at all costs. And so when John says Jesus had to pass through Samaria, when the original readers would have heard that, they would have been shocked. They would have said, 
no way would he have had to pass through Samaria. You don't pass through Samaria. You would rather die of thirst than go and take a drink from the unclean Samaritans. The only reason, the only reason why Jesus would have had to pass through Samaria was if he had a very strategic purpose of his own desire to pass through Samaria. A reason why he wants to be there. It's this moment where what at first looks like Jesus having, in a sense, to randomly leave a place because of brewing trouble and moving on to another place where he ends up at a water well in the middle of Samaria because he's tired and thirsty. It all looks very random, but it's as if the scripture calls out to us, this isn't random. This is not random. There is nothing random about God and human flesh. There's nothing random about Jesus. Even in his having to depart from a place because of trouble, the word of God in John chapter 1 declared to us that this word of God that existed with God, was one with God, was who ruled over the universe, who was building and creating and purposing all things since eternity past. God the Son, the Word made flesh, He hasn't ceased to purpose and work and create and do things. He's working out still plans and purposes of a sovereign God, even as He has come in human flesh. Still working out, living out sovereign purposes of the triune God of the universe, even in the midst of troublesome, seemingly random circumstances. So he has passed or purpose to pass through Samaria. He has purpose to move towards a rejected people. The God of the universe, whom the Jews would say, this is our God. And he has come after leaving, talking to a very religious man of the, of the Jews. And now he's purposed to move towards the rejected Samaritans. I know for some of us, that's hard to grasp. And to Paul, it would be as if one man moves towards an untouchable and takes her as his bride. And do you know what? Barnabas, the pastor who was showing us around, that's exactly what he, had, what, had, what he did. He took this woman who was an untouchable to the Hindu people and loved her, and moved towards her and took her as his bride. That's, that's what it's like here. I, still, I think it's still hard for us to grasp Our our hearts, as we see that, are supposed to say, oh my, what is God purposing here? What is he doing? And as we learn to pay attention to that, to God purposing through the random things, and as he moves towards rejected people, we we are to learn, as we see that in the scripture, and, and, and apply that to our own lives. Okay, God is at work, purposing good, always working in all things, even what seems so random, even what seems like trouble brewing over here. My God is always doing good. He's always doing good. So what good is he purposing now? View a purposeful God as you see what looks like random moments in Scripture. Hear the echoes of a sovereign and purposeful God. In verse 5, Jesus comes to a well called Jacob's well in the land of Samaria. And amazingly, God in human flesh, as he was, he's tired from his travel and thirsty. He sends his disciples into the nearby Samaritan town to buy food from these unclean, rejected people. I would just have loved to hear the conversation 
as they walked into the city. But Jesus sits at this well at the sixth hour of the day, which would have been around 12 noon, one of the hottest parts of the day. And here comes a Samaritan woman to draw water from the well. We know because of verse 16, or verse 16, 17, 18, that Jesus knows that not only is this a Samaritan woman, but she's a woman who has lived a sin-broken life, a sin-filled life, a woman who has been spiritually drinking from the filthy streams of sin of this world, all that it has to offer. She's been drinking a very public sin. She's had five husbands, and the man she's currently living with is not her husband. She's searching for soul satisfaction in sinful relationship after sinful relationship, and it has not left her satisfied. It has not parched the thirst of her soul, but here she comes to get water from this well. Are you already beginning to see the the, the spiritual metaphors happening here? She's by herself, not a friend in sight at the hottest part of the day. Most women would have gone to the well to get water at the cooler times of the day, so morning or evening. But we get the sense that this woman, who is of a rejected people, is, in an, is even of herself an outcast among the outcasts. Because of her sinful life, it's even unacceptable among rejected people. And so she's not going in the morning. She's not going in the evening. Here she comes in the middle of the day by herself. And Jesus talks to her. The perfect, most holy one of the universe is thirsty. And not only is he thirsty, he talks to her. He meets this woman at a well. Jesus knows where he's going. He's not surprised by where he ends up. He knows where he's going. And should he drink, as he asks her for a drink, should he drink from the vessel? He knows exactly what that would mean. Unclean. Unclean. She expresses a startled question that we are supposed to express. What are you doing talking to me and asking me for a drink? And just in case John makes sure, just in case you're not grasping how big this is, John says in verse 9 to emphasize this, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Yet here Jesus is sovereign over every place he goes. The word of God made flesh. And now he speaks to her. Jesus isn't just some normal man. He's not just some normal Jewish rabbi. The sovereign, purposeful God of the cosmos has come to this well to meet this rejected, sin-filled, sin broken and soul thirsty woman and aren't we glad that Jesus moves towards people like that because when we're real about our sin the gospel frees us to be real about our sin both past present and future when we're real about our sin we can say that was me I was the woman drinking from all these broken wells of the world I was the woman going to the filthy river, drinking of the world's world's offering of water, idolizing relationships, whatever it may be, drinking, thinking it will satisfy my soul. And yet he would move towards me. 
When you trace the line of your salvation, the thread of your salvation to its beginning point, you know where it will lead you? To this very same Jesus. Oh my. Let those truths, don't just move past those truths when you read your word. Don't just look, you know, I'm, I'm just going to go study this big word, theologies, and, just, and, and yet you move past the heart of God as he moves towards sinful people. That should shock you. And you should never grow as, away from that as if that's normal. A holy God who created all things moved towards sinful people. And it is, here's our first glimpse of it in the, in the Gospels. It should blow us away. He is moving towards broken, sin-filled people. How is it that he would interrupt my life as I seemingly was just living a random life? And yet he would rush upon me with such mercy and grace. Meeting me as I wasn't even looking for him. What an amazing savior. What an amazing savior. I think it's truths like this. It's truths like this. It's almost like we get to the gospel and we think it's just, I've heard this, it's just the doorway in and then we get into the house and we think like everything else, we move on from the gospel. No, you live in light of this work. Every day, a fresh awareness of how is it that he would move towards me? How is it that I can be one of his people welcomed into this room? I am so undeserving. Who am I? The God of the universe would come and speak to me and say, let there be life. Who am I? And, and when, as we gaze upon these, these simple yet profound truths of the gospel, of a God who moves towards the rejected and outcast, sin-broken people, it should make us humble and happy people. And because it should make us humble and happy people, it should make us a humble and happy church. That's the outflow of these particular truths. When you read this New Testament, the, the gospel writers of the New Testament writers, they don't move on from these truths. Paul, 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31, declares this. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Put your name right there if if you have come to know Christ. Low and despised, weak, foolish. To bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Oh, may we be a church that boasts in the Lord, not in our sound system. Who cares about that, man? It does serve. I'll be honest. It does serve, right? It does serve. We'll just say that. We don't have to be falsely holy in a sense. But we can call it what it is. Lord, 
That doesn't matter in the, in, in, in the, in the long term. That doesn't matter. Lord, it's not, we're not trying to be impressive, how physical, the greatest orators. No, we're just people who are boasting in Jesus. Oh, man, may that be so for us. Built into this truth that he moves towards the foolish and the unwise and the broken. Built into that truth, it should make us humble and happy people and people of hope. How many of us have people we love dearly who are wayward and lost and drinking from the foolish and filthy rivers of the world? harming themselves, but it's like they're blind, like they're just the the drone of people at Pashupati Temple walking up to the river that clearly is filthy, dead people's ashes in it, thinking it's going to cleanse me. We see that and you say that's so foolish, but yet they are so blind to it. How many of us have people like that that we love dearly and we're pleading and it feels as if they are beyond the reach of God? Passages like this anchor our hope. Jesus moves towards foolish, lost, sin-filled people. And when he decides to move towards them, when he chooses to capture you, you all know what happens. He goes relentlessly, pursuing you, hunting your heart down, capturing you in beautiful ways. We know, because we can read to verse 40 and, and on, that little did this, know, did this woman know what would happen at that well that day. Oh, but Jesus was on a mission. Precious saints, it gives us hope for those ones we love and we pray for. Jesus, you can do it. You can do it. Don't lose hope, precious saints. It makes us humble and happy people. And the truths of the gospel here make us hope-filled people. This story is purposefully put here in the gospel of John because it marks the mission of Jesus as he engages the very religious in John chapter 3, right? Nicodemus, this Pharisee. And then the very next words or passages in John 3 is that Jesus is this bridegroom who's, who has a bride. If he's a bridegroom, he has a bride. Who's the bride, you're left asking. And Jesus, in the mixture of all these verses, this religious man, Nicodemus tells him, you need to be born again, Nicodemus. And then Jesus declared this bridegroom who has a bride. And then the very next passage, what happens? Jesus is going and he's meeting a woman at a well. He's meeting this lady at a well, this broken, sinful, sin-filled woman outcast, rejected woman of Samaria. And then even right after these verses, what does he do? He goes to a Gentile official son in Galilee, heals this Gentile official son in Galilee. He's moving. Jesus is on a mission. This bridegroom who's pursuing his bride, this bride who looks very different. The religious of John chapter 3, the Samaritan outcast and rejected and sin tasting and thirsting woman in John chapter 4, then the Gentile official son in Galilee. All of it is living out John three sixteen to show us that Jesus truly was going to all the world. It's radical. The Jews would have said, no way. No way. And we should say, praise you. 
thank you. Jesus truly going to all the world. He hasn't just come for the religious elite. He's purposely moving towards the sin-filled and sin-broken and rejected and wayward bride of the world. And each one of them very different, yet all in need of the same thing. They need a Savior. And they need the gift of life that only God can give. That blooms from within. It can't be found in anything else of this world. And that's exactly the very thing Jesus points out in verses 10 through 18. We see this Jesus, the wellspring of living water and the thirsty woman. The Samaritan woman is concerned. How is it that Jesus will be talking to her and asking her for a drink of water? But beginning in verse 10, Jesus corrects her, essentially telling her she's asking the wrong question. If she truly knew just who she was talking to, if she knew the gift of God standing before her, God the Son given by God the Father so that whoever would believe in Him may have eternal life, right? John three sixteen, that gift. If she knew that that gift was standing before her in the person and work of Jesus Himself, she would be asking Him, give me a drink. Let me drink of you. Jesus calls that drink living water. Living water was not an uncommon term in a physical sense. That that term of living water would have been known as as water that was flowing and fresh spring water or fresh running uh, a fresh running st- stream, not stagnant or still water. And so her response is still thinking about physical thirst and thinking of natural ways. She, she says, sir, you don't even have anything to draw water out of this well. So how are you going to draw water and give me water? And on top of that, this is a deep well. I think in, in her saying that, she's essentially saying this is a good well. It's a deep well with cold and refreshing water. This is Jacob's well. Jacob, who, who would become known as Israel in the Old Testament, who gave us this well. And he and his family drank from this well. Here's, here's what's interesting. At the time in which this encounter would have happened, from what we could, you can sort of trace through biblical history, and at the time that Jesus encountered this woman, this well, which is a real well, This water well would have been providing fresh water, essentially well water, to people for nearly 2,000 years already. It's a pretty solid well, Jesus. It's a pretty good well. It's a deep well. It's got water. Coal water. This is a solid well. It's been serving for a long time. And in fact, if you... If you were to look it up, it's still in existence. They built a church building around it and all that, but you can still go see this well. It still has water. That's amazing. So you could think in her mind, it's already been serving generations of people by this point. How could you have better water than this? How could you have better water than this? This is a pretty good water. So are you greater than Jacob? Jesus essentially says, yes. Yes. But not only am I greater than Jacob, I'm the true well. This well existed in God's providence to point to me. This well exists and you think it's so great. Let me show you something better 
You say, God, Jacob, your father provided this to you. Let me show you your true father and what well he has provided for you. Jesus is not just greater than Jacob. He's the true well, the wellspring of living water where the thirsty and parched of the world can come and drink and find true refreshment and true satisfaction for their parched and weary souls. He says in verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water, this well water, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This woman, and you can't blame her to some degree, right? At this point in the conversation, her response is she's still thinking about physical water. She's thirsty. She she says to him, sir, once again, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She still thinks Jesus is talking physical water, and that's appealing to her. Who doesn't want to haul jugs back and forth to this well, especially someone who is an outcast of society and wants to avoid the crowd of women who knows how she's living? But Jesus is talking about her heart thirst, isn't he? He's talking about her heart thirst. There, There may be real physical thirst and weariness this lady's experiencing, but Jesus gets to her real need the need of her parched and dry soul because of sin that's ruling her heart. So she's stuck in this never-ending cycle of drinking from filthy streams of the world, just like those coming to the river in Nepal to partake, in a sense, coming to drink of the streams of idols, thinking it will satisfy, but really it's just gross. It's just filthy water that makes you sicker and sicker, more and more thirsty, leaving you parched and dry and unsatisfied. And Jesus points out the world's well of sin that she's been drinking from in verse 16. Go call your husband and tell him to come here. I know you want physical water, but let me just take you a step deeper. Go call your husband. I have no husband. Well, you're right. You have five. And the one you're living with now is not even your husband. What you said is true. Having to come to this well and work for water during the hottest part of the day to avoid the scrutiny of people who know how she's living is not her greatest need. There's real brokenness there because of sin. She's living in willful sin. She cares about honoring Jacob, but disregards God's word and way. She's been drinking from the stream of immorality, idolizing men, idolizing relationships, drinking from the well of the world and never being satisfied. And that's what sin does, doesn't it? That's the trick of sin. It mesmerizes, appealing to the passions and thirsts for wrong things and promises to refresh and satisfy apart from God when God ultimately made us only to be satisfied in Him. And the Bible would say, when we do that, 
when we try to go and drink from things of the world that will never satisfy and we turn away from the God of living water, the Bible calls it horrific. The Bible would say that's a, that is incredibly appalling. It's horrific. It's shocking that you would rather turn away from the God of the universe and drink from filthy water. That you would rather turn from God who is this, the, could offer the greatest relationship, right? He calls us sons and daughters. He calls us precious sheep. Oh my, precious little ones, beloved saints, friends. We turn from him and we say, I want that instead. That can satisfy my hunger and thirst more. That man or that woman Marriage, that job, that sin, if I just look at that, I'll be satisfied and it leaves you dry and hungry every time. If I just was accepted by that person, broken wells, filthy water. And the Bible says it's appalling and it's horrific that we would turn from God and do that. Listen to Jeremiah 2. Be appalled, O heavens. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. It's almost as if God's saying, look at this. Can you believe that? Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. These, these cisterns at this time would have been like they dug a hole in like a bedrock so that rainwater could get in it. And he's saying you would rather build things or put your hope in things that will never truly satisfy. It's like you built these water holding cisterns, but they're cracked and they're broken. And so when the rainwater falls, you go and you, 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 you think you can take a drink. But when you drink from it, you realize it's empty. That is what we do towards God when we drink or pursue other things in this world or try to find soul satisfaction in other things of this world. Like building a broken cistern that will never hold refreshing water for you. You're going to keep trying to fill it up over and over again and it's never going to fill up. You're always going to be thirsty. Drinking from broken wells, filthy streams, always leaving you heart thirsty, parched and dry, aching in anguish of unsatisfied desires, withering in the devastation of sinful and bad decisions, spiritually dead and thirsty. And the terrifying truth, the terrifying truth is that that thirst will continue on into eternity. Jesus told a parable in Luke 16 where he, he told of a rich man who had essentially been drinking of the well of the world, had all that he needed, but didn't abide by God's word and way. And just like everyone else, he died. And as he died, he wasn't in the glory of God. He was in eternal torment, excruciating anguish, experiencing the unquenchable thirst of his soul. 
And it says he cried out for just one drop from heaven of water. One drop upon my tongue. The Lord essentially says, too late. That soul thirst will continue on into eternity, but by God's grace, precious things, I know for many of us who once were there drinking of broken cisterns, by God's grace, he has sent Jesus the true well, the wellspring of life as a gift for the thirsty soul. He hasn't left us as we were. Jesus in John 7 says this very thing. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. Jesus gives this soul-satisfying life through his spirit that is, he likens to living water, to the refreshment of water. I think about it all the time. If we, you think about jumping in a nice pool on a hot day, how refreshing it is. You think about drinking a nice cold glass of water whenever you've been out mowing the grass or running or whatever it may be and how, how replenishing and reviving it is. And he says, even better than that, come and drink from me and find true soul satisfaction. Find true life in me. Come and drink. And how do we come and drink? We come to his feet and we believe. We believe is what he says. We believe and his spirit swells up within us like rushing, overflowing life, rivers of water. Precious saints, there would be one other time when Jesus would thirst. See, I think whenever you look at this passage, there's a lot happening. There's Old Testament fulfillment happening. But then when you read it in the echo of the cross that's coming, that Jesus was willing to sit and say to this sinful woman, give me your cup and let me drink. Give me that which would, your uncleanness, and let me drink of your uncleanness. Because we know as he drinks from the cup of our uncleanness. When you look at the cross, what happens? At the cross, what did he say? He said, I thirst. The second time in scripture when he thirsts is on the cross, when he would be drinking from our cup of judgment, from God's cup of wrath for us that we deserved, when he would take upon himself our sin thirst and he would take it completely upon himself in that moment on the cross see i think the woman at the well is this moment that's echoing to what he's going to be accomplishing at the cross he's met the bride here's the bride this wayward bride of christ and she's unclean she's reflective of this this one whom jesus is coming on a mission for to die for on the cross and so on that cross it was as if God's well of judgment was poured out upon our precious Savior. And he took upon himself as he thirsted. He took upon himself our, our sin thirst. And he drank the cup of wrath for us. So that we in him could come and never know what it's like to be thirsty. Never know what it's like to have the spirit longing for more. 
He drank the cup so that, of wrath so that we could drink the cup of soul-satisfying living water. Amen? Stand. Let's stand and let's pray.